Praise the Lord, for it is good to sing praises to our God, for it is pleasant and a song of praise is fitting. The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers the outcasts of Israel. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. He determines the number of the stars. He gives to all of them their names. Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. The Lord lifts up the humble. He casts the wicked to the ground. Sing to the Lord with thanksgiving. Make melody to our God on the lyre. He covers the heavens with clouds. He prepares rain for the earth. He makes grass grow on the hills. He gives to the beasts their food and to the young ravens that cry. His delight is not in the strength of the horse, nor his pleasure in the legs of a man. But the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him, in those who hope in his steadfast love. Praise the Lord, O Jerusalem. Praise your God, O Zion, for he strengthens the bars of your gates. He blesses your children within you. He makes peace in your borders. He fills you with the finest of the wheat. He sends out his command to the earth. His word runs swiftly. He gives snow like wool. He scatters frost like ashes. He hurls down his crystals of ice like crumbs. Who can stand before his cold? He sends out his word and melts them. He makes his wind blow and the waters flow. He declares his word to Jacob, his standing, his statutes and rules to Israel. He has not dealt with he has not dealt thus with any other nation. They do not know his rules. Praise the Lord. Well, this morning we're going to be thinking about God, the stars, and you. And I've been doing a lot of thinking about stars this week, and I had this one question that kind of got stuck in my mind as I was trying to think about how many sand pieces would it take to equal the, the stars of heaven. Have you ever asked questions like that? Is it, you got a question like that stuck in your head and you're like, I just have to answer it or I'm going to go crazy? Well, that hit me this week. And so I started thinking about, I wonder how big of a jar I need. And then I said, well, no, I bet it'd be more like a dump truck. And I was like, okay, I've just got to look this up. So uh, I looked it up and there was this book that was actually written by a guy out of Hawaii, a researcher. His name is David Blattner. And as he was looking at the, the sands of the seashore, he decided just to take a, a tablespoon and count the granules that were in that tablespoon. And then he said, okay, I'm guessing that if we take this as an average sort of size or number of sands in this kind of space, and then multiply it time the, times the beaches and the deserts in the world, we'll get an idea of how much sand there is. You know what number he came up with from that? You should know this, it's 7.5 quadrillion pieces of sand. Now you might be like, what is a quadrillion? Uh, well, it's basically a 75 with 17 zeros behind it. That's a lot of sand, right? Well, it gets more interesting. So I said, well, that definitely sort of outnumbers the number of stars, right? And so uh, I looked at another source and I was looking at this work by David Cornish, a guy out of Ithaca College. And he said, well, if we wanted to think about how many stars there are in heaven, here's how we'd need to go about it. I mean, we can't ultimately do this, but here's how we could make a good guess. Uh, we could start off by counting the number of stars in our own galaxy. Now, our sun is a star and it's small and probably wouldn't pick up on this test, but let's just say our galaxy is an idea of the average and there are somewhere between 100 and 200 billion stars in our galaxy. 
Well, then you would just need to multiply that times the number of galaxies. And again, a rough estimate. And he's, so he said, okay, well, we, we have a 2016 uh, study that says they believe there's something like 2 trillion galaxies. So if you multiply 100 to 200 billion stars times 2 trillion, uh, you get uh, a pretty big number there too. Uh, in fact, the number that they came up with, and I had to write this down, it is one septillion, which is a one with 24 zeros behind it. So which one is more? The stars by a lot. Like there are a lot more stars than there are even grains of sand on our planet. Now here's where it gets even crazier. David Blattner comes full circle at the end of his book and he says, by the way, uh, what's even more incredible is if you were to look at 10 drops of water, you would find more molecules in those 10 drops of water than you would find in all the stars of heaven. That is the vastness of of our God, when you look deep into space and when you look close up to that which is all around you, and those are the very molecules that our sovereign God claims to be in charge of and sovereign over in our text this morning. We have a vast and great God. I love how Blattner closes uh, his book or his article that he writes about his book. He says that we are surrounded by vastness and we just can't handle what he calls the bigitude. I think that's bigness, bigitude of all that is around us. And I'm just curious, as you think about the vastness of God, his bigitude, how does that make you personally, individually feel this morning? As you think about the vastness of God, does that make you, uh, in one sense, think, wow, that's great that God's that big. Do you ever think to yourself, maybe he's so big and vast, I mean, that's mind-blowing, that just maybe it's unrealistic to think that that great God would think about lowly small you. I've known people all the time who look at themselves and they feel as they think about the vastness of God, small, insignificant, neglected, like God's too busy to care for them as an individual. We're going to be thinking about this morning. We're in our Songs from the Shadow series in Psalms in Psalm 147, which is, by the way, an epic psalm. It gives a grand vision of who God is about his sovereignty and power and might. The psalmist calls God's people to revel in the God whose providence rules over stars and clouds and water, as well as his extraordinary care for the people that bear his name. See, he pulls in God's providence and God's people, and he says these are actually two doctrines that need to go hand in hand, and they should comfort us. So he named the stars, but he puts his name on a people. And I believe what this psalm does is it encourages God's people to trust God's power and wisdom as they await the Messiah and his coming kingdom. Now, the psalmist drops a few clues about the, the context of this psalm. Uh, we know in, from verse 2 that he is envisioning a day when there is a, a rebuilding of Jerusalem, the city of God where God dwelt with his people, the, the heart of the kingdom of God. And, and in this vision, you'll notice that he is gathering the scattered exiles of Israel to dwell together in Zion. God will restore his people. Now, if you're taking notes, this is a great thing to write down. It's our big idea. This is our our big idea this morning. It is that the lifter of the stars is fully able to lift up his people. That's what we're going to see this morning in this text. It is that the lifter of the stars is fully able to lift up his people. Do you believe that? I hope that as we go through this word that your confidence in that grows. Well, first, you need to notice uh, an important note that the psalmist makes up top. 
And that's this. He says that praising God is pleasant and fitting. Praising God is pleasant and fitting. And in verse 1, the psalmist begins with a, a dogged command and a grounding reason for that command. His command is this, praise the Lord. Uh, that word that we saw last week, it, it means hallelujah. It comes from hallelujah in the Hebrew. And you'll notice this psalm begins and ends with praise the Lord. But then he goes on to give the reason. He says, for it is good to sing praises to our God. For it is pleasant and a song of praise is fitting. Now, what is his reason? That we should sing praises to God. It is because God, it is good for us to do that. As God's people, it is good for us to sing to our God. Let me just ask you, do you believe that it's good for God's people to sing to their God? That was really sad. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to be judgmental, but I mean, it's like the God of the universe, the star thing. Y'all didn't catch that? There we go. We're getting closer. But God is worthy of our praise, and it is good for us to sing to him. And let's just think about that for just a second. See, God says that it is, it is good for us to sing to God for two reasons. He says, one, that it is pleasant, and two, that it is fitting. Now, just think about this for a moment. God's people have returned home after about 70 years in exile in Babylon, surrounded by people who challenged their faith at every point. And Israel alienated God through their idolatry long before they became aliens in Babylon. They were outcasts in Babylon. They were paupers with nothing but great promises in their pockets, wondering if their great God really cared about them. And, and look, they're not being judgmental. I mean, they had sinned greatly against God, and that's the reason they were exiles. And so they were wondering if they had sort of unearned God's grace to them. But catch this. Once the psalmist begins to unpack the greatness of God, he wants to make sure that they know that the unparalleled greatness of God doesn't mean that our singing isn't pleasant to him anymore, that it is pleasant to us. It is pleasant to God and it is pleasant to us to sing to God. It is a pleasant and fitting thing that we sing to him. See, just think about that for a second as we have been thinking on the greatness of our God. God's not too busy holding the universe together to stoop down and take delight in the songs of his people rejoicing in God being God. Isn't that incredible? That a God that literally names the one Sestillion stars cares about our voices at Trinity Bible Church on Sunday morning. And that he's brought glory and honor by that. That it is pleasing to him. And by verse 7, you'll notice that he's calling for a guitar. He says, let's get this thing going, right? I mean, he's, he's excited. Uh, it's not really a guitar. It's a lyre, which is probably more like a harp. But I just, I've never done that, so I don't know what that looks like. Guitar works for me. But when you think about music and like, is it pleasant and is it fitting? Uh, I think Colossians 3.16 is important. You remember last week we saw there that Paul tells us that music is actually something that he has created and given to us as part of the teaching ministry of the church. So that fundamentally as we sing, it is really about teaching us about God. But music here, notice, it's not just that. It also pleases God and his people. That God's people love to sing to God. God's redeeming love, it always gives birth to praise. And when life beats us down, music is God's medicine for beleaguered souls. You know, I, I can't tell you how many times I've come in here on Sunday morning 
and I've had a difficult week, and I need to hear from God, and I'm sitting here and I'm singing, and as I'm singing, and I'm singing the truths of God's word, I find that it's not just that it's reminding me true things about God, but I find my heart actually believing it more as I'm singing with you. And God intends that. He means for you to be able to hear the voices of the brothers and sisters around you and for that to act as a kind of medicine for your soul as it is broken, as it needs to be reminded of the hope that's in God, as it needs fresh grace from God. I love the the image of David's music calming Saul's soul in the Old Testament. And I believe that God's people praising God loudly together yanks heaven down and catapults our souls up to God. Praising God, it's not just pleasant notice it's also fitting and right now what makes it right for sinners sinners as we are to sing to a holy god who sits in the heavens doing as he pleases we have a biblical word for that it's called grace see god's grace to god's people mean that we are never as human as god made us to be as when we are singing hallelujah to the lord we are never as human as god intended us to be as we are recognizing god in loud song that is appropriately tied to our lives, rejoicing in him for all that he is. I love what Derek Kidner says here. He says in his commentary about singing, he says, the very act of responding articulately to God's pure glory and goodness is enlivening and emancipating. It brings us to life and it brings freedom to our souls to want to serve God with all that we are. So let's just sing. When we sing, let's sing like we want to enliven and emancipate all that can hear. Now the rest of these verses, I believe, are are kind of commentary further explaining why it's pleasant and fitting to sing to the Lord. Uh, Notice second, verses two to six, this. Uh, We see the psalmist tell us that the lifter of the stars is also the lifter of his humble people. The lifter of the stars is also the lifter of his lowly or humble people. First, you'll notice that he is the lifter of his people. Uh, In verses 2 and 3, look there and see what God's word says again. It says, the Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers out the outcast of Israel and he heals the brokenhearted. He binds their wounds. And so here you'll catch the beauty of the two images that he combines. The first envisions God rebuilding Jerusalem. God's people and gathering his wounded scattered outcast. He heals the brokenhearted. And he binds their wounds. Uh, Charles Spurgeon here uh, gives a, a good image. He says, our God is both a builder and a healer. He restores broken hearts as well as broken walls. Now don't miss this. God's people have never been any more than brokenhearted outcasts. His people have always been a group and gathering of broken-hearted outcasts. In fact, uh, you'll remember that we still are referred to as a kind of broken-hearted outcast in 1 Corinthians one twenty-six, where God calls the church, Christians, uh, speaks of them and, and gives these encouraging words. He says, I have called few wise, few powerful, and few noble to myself. So most of you are not any of that. <laughs> now you feel good about yourself, don't you? But you look nice this morning, so... You got that. But the point is, is that God, when he is looking for a people, is not looking for what's special in us. He is actually looking to demonstrate the greatness of who he is. And so often, it is the lowly who provide the best lumber for God to make much of the glory of his name. 
See, none of us are indigenous Christians born into the kingdom of God, and that's why we need a new birth, because the first birth into a Christian home or a good personality doesn't make you more than an alien to God. See, our our manufacturer's default setting is that of sin-sick outcast, alienated from God, needing to be brought near to him. And do you see the beauty of this? God cares for the lowest of the low of his people. So if you're in, you're in. If you're part of God's people, God cares for you. That's what that means. He loves you. He loves all of his children as a father loves his children. But not only that, notice he's not just one who cares for his kids. He's also the lifter of the stars. Did you see that? Did you catch how quickly he, he moves from the lowly to raising their gaze up to the unparalleled heights of the glory of God in the second image? He sees that in verses four to five. Look what he says. There, God's word says this about God. He says, he determines the number of stars. He gives to all of them their names. Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. Now, in Genesis 15, 15, or 15, 5, you might remember that God made a great promise to Abraham And he said, I I want you to look up to the heavens and I want you to start counting the stars. And as many stars as you count, so shall your offspring be. You will have offspring as numerous as the stars of heaven. And just as Adam named his animals in Eden, showing a sign of his dominion over them, God is naming the stars, claiming dominion over the spheres, over the expanse of the heavens that go infinitely great into oblivion. And yet here what we find It's something amazing. Just as this is true, God says this. Here the psalmist says that the same God who named the stars has put his name on his people. Now just think about this. The Egyptians worshipped the sun, right? The sun god Ra. And and, and they worshipped this one star that our own solar system surrounds and goes around and hurls around day after day. This one sun, which is one of countless billions of billions of stars. And here we find that God not only knows them all, but names them all. That this is one speck under the grand sovereignty of a sovereign God. There is no God like him. And the destiny of the stars is determined by the same God who stoops down to dress the wounds of his humble people. Isn't that awe-inspiring that God would come that low and condescend that low that he would care for you, especially when you consider what he's done with the stars? Do you see the way the psalm flips God's greatness on its head? He's showing how great God is and how great his care is. Derek Kidner in his commentary writes this, the one who marshals the host of stars, calling them all by name, is more than equal to the problems in both power and understanding. And do you know that? Do you believe that? God's providence, his power, his unparalleled glory, it is not a reason not to take confidence in him, but a reason to take full confidence that whatever problem you face, however far you feel from God, however broken you feel like your life is, that he is a God, if he can lift the stars, he can lift your life. That's the nature of our God. What hope? What hope in this great God? See, he's not too great to be bothered by our problems. He's so great that we can trust his power and wisdom in our everyday lives. And that's why verse 6 promises the broken heart. The broken hearted who seek humility, he says this, 
The Lord lifts up the humble. But catch this, he also casts the wicked to the ground. He is a just God. A great reversal is coming for those who humble themselves before the lifter of the stars. Have you humbled yourself before God this morning? Have you sought him and pursued him? Are you running from him? Catch this, God lifts the humble, but he casts down the wicked. Have you ever felt like God had a little bit too much on his plate to concern himself with your life? Anybody ever had that, that thought? Like maybe God's just too busy or maybe you're like the other way and you're like, I'm pretty important. I don't know why God's not paying more attention. Uh, but either way, you feel like maybe God is not quite as involved as he ought to be in your life. Maybe you know God is powerful and wise, but you feel like he is far off from concern with your life. You know, I had a, a friend uh, recently told me a story about taking his daughter to the doctor. And he's taking her to the doctor, and he's sitting there and having to watch as this doctor is doing kind of a scary procedure on her. And uh, he even at one point had to like kind of hold her down for the procedure. And in the middle of it, she looks up with him, at him with her, her big eyes and says, Daddy, why are you letting him do this to me? That's why I'm glad I don't have girls, by the way. Because, like, I've got nothing for that. But I'm guessing that maybe some of you feel a little bit like that in life sometimes. Like, God, why are you letting them do this to me? Why are you not interacting? Why are you not coming and saving me? Where are you? And even more so when it looks like the, whiskey, the wicked are prospering all around you and you're brokenhearted. You're brokenhearted over your sin, over the unmet desires of your heart. Whether they be godly or not, you grieve over that which you do not have, over your marriage or over your lack of a marriage, over not having kids, over your kids who have not put their faith in Christ, over being abused, or over the changing dynamics of family life, like sending a kid off to college or moving to another state. And in all of that, you're just like, God, where are you? I feel very alone right now. And God, catch this, is not the great watchkeeper of your soul. See, he is, he is not the great watchmaker who has in some ways created this universe and then just steps back and lets it kind of go as it will, but he never involves himself in it. That's not the picture that the Bible has of God. See, the picture that the Bible has of God is not that of God as a watchmaker, a great watchmaker who creates it and steps away, but that of a great who, physician who is coming and attentively paying attention to your wounds. And, and everything that God does, it, it's hard to, to believe and understand this, but it is always for your best interest, even if we can't see it. God, in the scriptures, if you are his child, is always working things together for the good of those who are called to him, who love him, who are all, uh, he is working all of his purposes towards our good. Don't doubt it. And here's the promise that is coming here, and that is this. It's that a great reversal is coming to broken-hearted outcasts like you and me. Don't you long for that day? I mean, some days I long for it more than others, but I can't wait for the day that God has promised when he is going to undo everything that has been done that has broken our hearts, and he is going to explain how his glory has been made great even through those things that we do not understand. That is the promise that's coming. I long for that day. But there's a second thing, that, I mean, a third thing that we see here, and that's this important point. Uh, make sure you write this down. God's not impressed with your glutes or hammies because nobody eats without God. That's true. It's in the text. We're going to see it. God's not impressed with your glutes or your hammies because nobody eats without God. I think that's what verses 7 to 11 are saying. 
Now, just beware, this is true of both horses and humans. We see this in this text, horses and humans. Uh, If you don't believe me, look there again with me in your text. We're going to read verses 7 to 11. Here's what he says. Here's what God's word says. He says, sing to the Lord with thanksgiving. Make melody to our God on the lyre. He covers the heavens with the clouds, and he prepares rain for the earth. He makes the grass grow on the hills. He gives the beast their food and the young ravens that cry. His delight is not in the strength of the horse, nor his pleasure in the legs of a man. But the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him and those who hope in his steadfast love. See, y'all didn't believe me, but that's right there in the text. You'll notice here how God, he moves from the stars down to the, the heavens and the clouds, which God sovereignly prepares to give rain to the earth, to grow grass on the hills that God then uses to feed the beast and the ravens, which amazes me for a couple of reasons. First, uh, I've had as many as nine pets at my home at one time, not including little boys. We're actually down to one now, and I can't say that that was a clean going down from nine to one. There were some deaths, some ugly things that happened in between, not on purpose, it just, you know, life happened, pets die. And yet here we find that God has tons of pets, right? Like a whole earth of pets, and he feeds them all. No one eats without God. No one has strength without God. Ultimately, the reason that we pray when we eat, if you pray when you eat, is a recognition that ultimately, all of our food ultimately comes from God. If God stops, we stop. That's the way it works. You'll notice here, there's something second that's really interesting. That this envisions God's providential care over all things, his providence. Now, what is this providence of God? It's It's a word that we use. It's not in the Bible, but it describes the way that the Bible speaks about things like we find right here. Now, the Heidelberg Catechism was written in Germany in 1563, and it was meant to teach people about theology, and it asked questions and then gave answers, and in it, there was this this question asked, what is the providence of God? And here is their answer. The almighty and everywhere present power of God, whereby, as it were, By his hand, he still upholds the heaven and earth with all creatures, and so governs them that herbs and grass, rain and drought, fruitful and poverty, yeah, all things come not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. That is a big vision of God. That, by the way, also is a biblical vision of God. I mean, did you see it here? He is sovereign over the stars. He is sovereign over the rain, the clouds. He's sovereign over the the fields that that have grass on the hills that actually feed the animals, the beasts that most of us are not even aware of. Maybe forget to feed at nights. God has not forgotten the things that we forget about so much. God is pervasively sovereign over all things. And this looks entirely like what the psalmist has communicated here. Now here's... Something that I think this means by tangent. You know, I don't think the psalmist believes in good luck, bad luck, tough luck, or the luck of the Irish. He believes that that God is actually sovereign over all things, and things don't just happen. God is actually sovereign over them, working them towards his glorious will. And he believes in an altogether sovereign God who does as he pleases. He lifts the stars and he feeds the animals. So he's not impressed by our glutes or our hammies, right? 
Unpressed by the strength of men. It says the legs of men. Now, I, I know some of you are sitting there thinking like, oh yeah, I've been to the gym and I know how guys are about their legs. Uh, I was at the gym yesterday and I saw a guy like actually, you know, he was, and I'm not saying I've never done this, but he's like lifting up his shorts, right, to show like his leg muscles. He's like looking at them. He's like, man, doing good here. This is great. I'm impressed with myself. What about you, right? Um, things people do in the gym. It's crazy. Protect your minds and hearts. But I don't think that's exactly what's going on here. See, I think that he's actually pointing towards something even more. Now, maybe he's dealing with that, but I think at least something more than that. See, here we, we find that this psalmist is speaking of a, a, a kind of thing or kinds of things that people are impressed by to the degree that they begin to put their confidence and trust in them to the extent that they become God replacements. So in other words, they they aren't just saying like, oh man, they're just impressed by these things as in like, wow, that's really cool. Maybe even giving God glory for it. But instead it's like, wow, that is so cool that I think like I'm gonna give my life to that. I'm gonna trust the strength of that guy to sort of save me and to help me with my problems rather than God. I'm gonna trust the strength of those horses and that army to, to protect me rather than to trust that God actually is my shield. That's more of what I think he's saying. I'm just wondering, have you ever been in that place where you have begun to look elsewhere for things to trust your life with. You know, I, I know that this is a reality, hear me, for someone that even has really good theology. You can have great theology and life can hit you and you can start to ask some pretty, some pretty crazy questions. Some questions that you know the answers to, but you're giving the wrong answers to them. You know, life can hurt in such a way that you start to say things that, that just really aren't right or good or fitting about God. I don't know if you've ever been hit by life in such a way that it's really so difficult to understand how God is in control and for that thing to take place. Maybe you've been there. Maybe you've uh, been there and you've started singing along with Carrie Underwood, Jesus take the wheel, right? Like Jesus ever takes his hand off the wheel, right? Like that's, that's just not the Jesus that we know. Uh, a catchy song, by the way, but, but just not good theology, right? That's not who God is. God is, is one here who is pictured as always being sovereign over all things, See, Jesus is always sovereign over our lives. We're going to see that more in a minute. But when we think life is out of control, we tend to think that God is out of control. And we either look to Christ or we go God shopping. That's what we do in those difficult moments. That's basically what Psalm 27 is saying about the strength of horses. It gives us a clue as to what he's talking about. Uh, Notice there that the psalmist writes, Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the Lord our God. Do, Do you see it? Horses have become a God replacement for them. They have trust armies rather than God. And I think our hearts tend to do that as we find ourselves in these difficult situations in life. See, the Lord takes pleasure in those who revere him, those who hope in his covenantal steadfast love. That's what verse 11 says. Verse 11 says, here's what the Lord's impressed by. Here's what pleases him. Not the strength of men or horses, but the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him and those who hope in his steadfast love. And by the way, those who also praise his name in song. Now, I know it's an imperfect illustration. But when I I read this and I think about the providence of God and how hard life can get sometimes. And I'm not just talking about my life, but the lives of many of you as I've I've talked with you and and heard heard your stories like sometimes it can feel a little bit like you're, you're at war and you're just trying to like maintain sanity. 
And it, it reminded me of a very imperfect illustration of William Prescott, who during the Battle of Bunker Hill, during the Revolutionary War, was telling his men what they were going to do. And the plan was for all of them to stand in line with their muskets pointed towards the enemy. And he said, I don't want you to fire until you see the white of their eyes, right? Don't flinch, don't run, just stay. And sometimes I feel like I'm waiting to see the white of somebody's eyes with life. Like, when is it time to like sort of fight and get out of this? And maybe sometimes you want to flinch or run because life gets so hard. And, and how much more when you see the guns getting close, and the smoke of the fire, and, and the bayonets? I mean, I mean, life can come and it can, it can be scary, right? I mean, when you're sitting in a room and you're waiting for your next cancer treatment, or whenever you're, you just find that your, your child's missing, or, or, or maybe when you find out that you've lost your job, and, and you're wondering, like, God, when are you going to relent on this? Like, the situation, the circumstance, I, I just, I don't see the white of any eyes. Am I ever going to get out of this? And brothers and sisters, this is the way the human heart works. In fact, John Owen was writing about this. He was writing about how bitter providences can attack our souls with difficult questions about God. Things that we know aren't true, but that we begin to believe are true in our hearts lie straight from the pit of hell. And here's what he says. He says there are really four dangers for God's people when it comes to trusting in God's providence. Here's some, some, some areas where you've got to be careful about, about flinching or running from God. The first is visible confusion, right? So, so what he means by that is the oppression of, of tyrants, so like nations that are terrorizing other nations. Uh, we've seen genocide in our own, uh, our own lifetimes many times over. Uh, fortunately, we've not been victims of that. But there are those who have experienced that and who have loved Jesus and who have uh, seen visible confusion in the world. Uh, John Owen also gives uh, this interesting example of visible confusion in the fact that there are uh, horribly ungodly people who have really nice houses on the beach and that doesn't make sense to him. I think that was just a personal note. But there's a second one and that's unspeakable variety. Take, for instance... Christians, some are always persecuted, and some always are in peace. Some are in prisons, and some are in nice homes. Saints in some countries and ages are always oppressed, and others prosper. Some have been martyred, and some never touched. And as you look at that, you might think to yourself, well, okay, so I'm just trying to figure out, like, they love Jesus, and they love Jesus, and yet we're seeing two different things happening to these, these two different groups, and it just confuses me, and it begins to make me ask questions, right? Or what about third, sudden alterations, like Job, right? Job was honored. He was honored. He honored God. He was a godly man, and all of his prosperity came to ruin in a moment. Same day he was praying, by the way. And this choice saint lost his house, his children, his health, and his wealth, and he never got any answers to why except that God is God. That you need to trust God, that God is in control, that he is sovereign, that he is good, and that he is for his people. That's the answer that Job got. But you can see how that can amaze the soul when we see those kinds of things happen to godly people and we don't know why. Or what about fourth, great, deep, and abiding distress? You know, maybe you're someone who's experienced chronic pain or unyielding debt or sickness or the loss of a spouse, and the list goes on because this world is clearly broken. But know this, these are moments when we begin to trust our own wisdom and power more than God's wisdom and power. And we see the, the, the world around us is broken, 
And we think that we are infinitely wise in a way that we understand that this isn't working better than God who says, I am in control and infinitely wise and I know what I'm doing here. And it's in those moments that we most have to hope in God, trusting that God is greater than us, that his wisdom is greater than our wisdom, that his power and authority are greater than our power and authority. See, we look away from the lifter of the stars and the healer of our souls to sinful alternatives, but God delights in those who trust his heart even when they can't trace his hand. God is pleased not by our power or wisdom, but by our reveling in and hoping in his steadfast covenant love. And brothers and sisters, let's not move until we see the white of Jesus's eyes face to face when he returns. Let us remain steadfast. But there's a final thing that we see here, and that's in verses 12 to 20. That's that the God of creation is also the God of his covenant people. See, the psalmist hits a similar note here, but adds an important point to this climax. Uh, Notice in verses 12 to 13 that God is envisioning, or the psalmist is envisioning God restoring the fortunes of Jerusalem or Zion. That's God's holy mountain where he dwells with his people in his kingdom. He is seeing a day of restoration. And here's what it says in verses 12 and 13. He says this, He says, praise the Lord, O Jerusalem. Praise your God, O Zion, for he strengthens the bars of your gates. He blesses your children within. And he also says, he makes peace in your borders. He fills you with the finest of wheat. I mean, this is a God here who is caring for a people. Notice that God's special blessing is given to his special people, the ones who bear his name. He strengthens their gates so that those who are inside the borders of the kingdom of God are safe from all external threat. That that is something that they long for. We never see this fulfilled in the Old Testament, but, but we see that this is a promise that was made that they grasped onto, that they hoped in. And notice they also don't have to fear being drug off into exile, away from home and God anymore in this day. His special blessing is on their children, did you catch this, within them. God is, God is looking at their children. Speaking of God's ongoing blessing from generation to generation, bringing peace into their borders. And here again, they experience shalom like we've seen many times in the Psalms. They, they have what every heart longs for. Shalom in the home, peace with God and one another such that they experience the fullness of life and joy with God. And notice here that God himself feeds them even better than the beast and the ravens because he gives them the finest of wheat. If you want good wheat, you get God's wheat. If you want really good wheat, you get God's finest wheat. And this finest wheat goes to God's people who bear his name. God honors these humble, wounded, broken-hearted outcasts as honored guests. They're not going to be outcasts forever. There's a day when they're going to come home and they're going to be with God again. And do you see the beauty of this? The outcast who hoped in God will feast like rock stars at God's table. These are folks who are going to experience unprecedented joy at a lavish feast with the Lord himself. But catch here how the psalmist funnels God's providential control over all things that, that great control he has over all things, he funnels it into his special care for his covenant people in verse 15. Think about that. Funneling the care that is given to the stars down into a central, unique people who bear his name. In verse 15, and here's what he says. He sends out his command to the earth. His word runs swiftly. 
He gives snow like wool. He scatters frost like ashes. He hurls down his crystals like ice crumbs. Who can stand before this cold? He sends out his word and melts them. He makes his wind blow and the waters flow. Now, now catch this. This speaks of God's word casting down snow and frost, which freezes a river. And, and then that same voice speaks again in such a way that it actually melts the frozen river so that it flows again. And it's speaking of God's sovereign control by his word over creation. We have an intelligent mind that rules and reigns over the creation that we see. And God's sovereign over all of these things. Think about this. Here we see that God is sovereign over all of the states of the elements and the seasons. And the psalmist doesn't believe in maverick molecules, old man winter, or a big man upstairs, which I always thought was like a really creepy description for anybody. But he doesn't believe in this like disconnected kind of God. So he believes in a personal God that, that's personal and that God has shown unprecedented care to his covenant people through. See, this God is showing a kind of love that is unique, speaking to them in a special way with the same word that he has not spoken to anyone else. So in the same way that he controls all things by his word, he says, catch this, the most special word of all is the word that he has given to you, his people. And he says that in verses 19 to 20, where he says, he declares his word to Jacob. That's speaking of Israel as a people. His statutes and rules to Israel. He has not dealt thus with any other nation. They, know, they do not know his rules. Praise the Lord. So catch this. God's word says that God's word actually creates and sustains all things generally. But he has spoken specifically and specially to his covenant people. And Jesus picks up on this move from providence to a special confidence for God's people in Luke 12, 24, as Jesus speaks. And you might remember this. Jesus is teaching in the Sermon on the Mount on anxiety. And what does he say? Consider the ravens, right? Consider the ravens. They do not sow or reap. They have not storeroom or barn, yet God feeds them. And how much more valuable are you than birds? Now, if you know what a raven is, then, um, then you understand even more the beauty of this picture. Ravens are scavenger birds, right? And we don't know much about scavenger birds uh, because most of us are not gardeners, but they're very annoying. Like, they're the kind of thing you want to shoot because they'll, like, eat your crops and it's not theirs, right? I mean, most of us, the worst we've had is an experience at Chipotle. We walked away from our meal outside and the birds have come in and taken our food, right? But this is like talking about the livelihood of a people that could mean life or death. They hated these scavenger birds. They would have killed them. And yet here, birds that most people would hate God cares for. And so if God cares for a a rodent bird like that, how much more is he going to care for the people whom he loves, his children? How much more does he love them than that? See, (laughs) that's why he tells his people not to flinch amidst the bitter provinces of this life. God never loses concentration on you. You might feel like he does, but your feelings lie if you're in Christ. He never loses sight of you. He's never not caring for you. That's what the Bible teaches pervasively. Here, that's why he tells them that they should not flinch against these bitter providences of life, but to seek the kingdom of God, trusting that God is pleased to give us the kingdom. See, God showed us how much more valuable we were than the ravens, didn't he? And how did he show us that? Well, it was when the father 
willingly sent his son, who willingly came and took on human flesh and died on a cross, the infinite son of God, in our place for you and me to bear our sins that we might be made peace and at right with God. And he was raised from the dead. He was exalted. He was humble and he was exalted. He lifted Christ higher than he lifted the stars to say that this son is unlike any son that you've known and a constant declaration to all of you, all who will listen and believe, that I love you more than the birds. Man was made a little bit lower than the angels and yet notice that I have exalted him high above all things. Why? Because God has shown a love for us. And why has he loved us? The Bible does not tell us why he would stoop to love something as low as us, except that it is with the great love with which he loved us, something in God that is glorious. That is the love that God has given to us. He was raised up from the grave and exalted and given a name above every name so that you know you can trust him with your life. You can trust Jesus with your life. But catch this. I want to make sure we don't leave with just too small a view of Jesus here today. You know, I'm always in danger of that. And sometimes we forget the greatness of who Jesus is, the Jesus that we are trusting with our lives. And so Paul didn't want us to forget this. That's why he wrote this about Jesus in Colossians 1, 15 to 20. And this is how we know Jesus is not like any other prophet or any other religious figure. He is God incarnate. This is what, this is what Paul says about Christ, the one whom you are trusting with your life. Listen to this. If this isn't an image, it ought to give you confidence. He says he is the the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him, that's Jesus, all things were created. Oh, he's creator? Yeah, because all that is God is the eternal son, and so if God created, then Jesus is God, he created. Uh, He says all things were created in heaven and on earth. That's right, stars and mountains and hills and grass and rain and and all that. He he created that, both visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things. And in him, catch this, all things hold together. Do you get the significance of that? doesn't mean that he just created and walked away. It means that right now he is upholding you and the molecules in your body such that if he let go, you'd be gone. I'm just wondering, is your vision of Jesus maybe just a little bit too small? All of ours is. And he is the head of the body. Not only does he hold molecules, but he holds the church. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. That is the one that you are trusting your life with. If Jesus holds the stars in his hands, you can trust him to hold you now and forever. Let's pray.